This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth. And welcome to the ancient world. Episode 7, Between Lions and Men. I want to begin this episode by returning to two areas we haven't visited for a while, China and India, and then spend some time discussing the Mycenaean Greeks in the period between their conquest of Crete and their even more legendary conquest of Troy. We last left China as the first Chinese dynasty, the Xia, took power in roughly 2100 BC. The Xia ruled the country for the next few hundred years. By 1700 BC, when the throne was passed down to the ruler Jie, the Xia clan had nearly exhausted its power and legitimacy. Jie himself was generally considered corrupt and irresponsible, the common example being that he ordered the construction of a new palace that took seven years and tens of thousands of slaves to build, and in the process nearly bankrupt the state. There are even crazier stories of his debauchery, including huge orgies taking place on lakes of wine, riding chancellors around like horses, etc., but I'm just going to leave you with the takeaway that, in terms of public opinion, the Xia dynasty was on fairly shaky ground. Meanwhile, the Shang clan, living near the lower reaches of the Yellow River, was gaining the support of neighboring tribes. Their ancestor, Qi, had worked for Yu the Great, and had been given the territory of Shang as his reward. During the reign of their current king, Tang, the Shang had begun to amass a great deal of local influence, in part due to implementing a program of agricultural development. While continuing to publicly portray himself as a vassal of the Xia, in secret, Tang continued to build his own power base. After winning the loyalty of 40 other minor kingdoms of the region, Tang began to make plans to overthrow the Xia. First, Tang moved his forces to a place named Bo, within easy striking distance of the Xia capital, which had been relocated to Henan during Jie's reign. When a few other local tribes sparked a rebellion against the Xia, Tang decided that the time was right to commit his forces. Upon hearing of the larger rebellion, Jie sent troops from the smaller territories of Gu, Wei, and Kuen Wu to confront the Shang. Tang spent much of the next year subduing the Xia vassals, then resumed his attack on the capital. The rival Xia and Shang armies finally met in the mid-17th century BC at the Battle of Ming Tao, which was fought during a raging thunderstorm. Tang's forces, with higher morale than those of the Xia, won the battle, captured and exiled Jie, eliminated the remaining Xia forces, and instituted the second Chinese ruling dynasty, 
the Shang. Under Tang's 17-year rule, the new dynasty got off to a good start, lowering taxes as well as the conscription rate for soldiers, and extending Shang influence over bordering vassal states. Tang also had the nine tripod cauldrons of the Xia relocated to the new Shang palace. Unfortunately, by the time of Tang's third successor, power had already begun to corrupt the Shang. The respected prime minister, Yi Yin, took the unusual step of exiling the Shang ruler, Tai Jia, to a small palace on the outskirts of his domain until he learned to rethink his corrupt ways. The process worked, and Tai Jia returned three years later to retake the throne as a chastened and far more benevolent ruler. Chieftains loyal to the Shang ruled the kingdom's provinces with a firm hand, paying tribute in the forms of both troops and taxes. These chieftains also often fought amongst themselves, taking advantage of one of the first innovations to reach China from the outside world, the horse-driven, spoke-wheeled chariot, introduced around 1300 BC by Indo-Iranian nomads from the Eurasian steppes. Battles between rival chieftains and chariots, each accompanied by armies of foot soldiers, often cost hundreds of lives. To guard against attack, cities were surrounded by walls up to 35 feet thick, made of earth rammed between a timber frame. From around 1500 BC onward, the Shang dynasty engaged in large-scale bronze production, another potential western import, which they mainly used to craft vessels and weapons. This production required a large labor force to perform the mining, refining, and transportation of the necessary copper, tin, and lead ores. This in turn created the need for official managers that could oversee both laborers and skilled craftsmen. The Shang royal court and elites required a vast amount of different bronze vessels for various ceremonial purposes and occasions of religious divination. Ceremonial rules even decreed how many bronze containers of each type a nobleman of a certain rank could own. With the increased amount of bronze available, the Shang army could also better equip itself with an assortment of bronze weaponry. Bronze was also used in the fittings of the spoke-wheeled chariots mentioned earlier. Apart from their role as military commanders, Shang kings also acted as high priests and led ritual divination ceremonies, as well as sacrifices to their royal ancestors and to the gods. The Chinese of this period worshipped many different gods, notably weather and sky gods, as well as a supreme god named Shangdi who ruled over all the others. Shang kings also claimed kinship with the gods and were offered human sacrifices when they died. In one royal burial at the last Shang capital, Yin, near modern Anyang, more than 60 bound captives were put to death. Shang dynasty peoples also believed that their ancestors became like gods when they died, and therefore required worship. Rulers built temples and tombs to their ancestors, and also often consecrated these buildings with human sacrifices. Shang kings had large retinues, including dozens of wives, as well as scribes versed in a fully developed and complex written language containing thousands of characters. The only surviving Chinese writings from this period were inscribed on bronze vessels or oracle bones such as tortoise shells, which were scorched so that diviners might read the future in the cracks that formed. Over the period of Shang rule, Chinese cities grew larger and more elaborate. 
The capital of Yin, for example, extended for more than three miles and contained specialized craft quarters, residences, temple complexes, and cemeteries. Villages and workshops for artisans and other commoners typically surrounded the royal district. One trade good of great value to the Chinese was silk, unraveled in threads from the cocoons of caterpillars that fed on mulberry leaves and woven into a lustrous cloth. Another was jade, a stone that had religious significance for the Chinese and was considered more precious than gold. Between around 1650 and 1050 BC, the Shang dynasty featured 31 kings and moved its capital at least six times. The final move to Yin, around 1350 BC, coincided with what is considered to be the dynasty's golden age. The term Yin dynasty is often synonymous with the latter half of the Shang dynasty. Archaeological work at Yin has uncovered 11 major royal tombs and the foundations of palaces and ritual sites, containing weapons of war and remains from both animal and human sacrifices. Tens of thousands of bronze, jade, stone, bone, and ceramic artifacts have been recovered, with workmanship on the bronzes attesting to a high level of cultural sophistication. One Shang emperor of note was Wu Ding, who ruled from 1250 to 1192 BC and was the first emperor to be recorded in contemporary accounts. Sent to live among the common people in his youth to better empathize with their troubles, Wu Ding ended up marrying some 60 women from different Chinese tribes in order to further cement clan loyalty. One royal consort, a woman named Fu Hao, managed to rise through the ranks to become a respected military general of the Shang, leading armies of up to 13,000 soldiers to victories over the hostile Tu Fang, Yi, Kang, and Ba tribes. Her unusual status is testified to by the many weapons, including great bronze battle axes, unearthed in her tomb. Fu Hao also appears to have held a position of high priestess of the royal court, and was often allowed to conduct rituals and perform sacrifices, previously the exclusive province of the king. Her tomb finds also include sacrificial bronze vessels and oracle bones used for divination, further evidence of her unique role in early Chinese history. Chinese historians living in later periods were accustomed to the notion of one dynasty succeeding another, but the actual political situation in early China was more complicated. Just as the Xia and Shang may refer to concurrent political entities, the Shang are believed to have existed concurrently with their successors, the early Cao. It's also unclear how far Shang domination extended from their final capital of Yin. Archaeological finds at Sangshengdui, which suggest a technologically advanced civilization culturally distinct from that at Yin, make scholars hesitant to associate all contemporary settlements with Shang dynasty influence. The leading hypothesis is the Shang coexisted and traded with numerous other culturally diverse entities across what is now considered China proper. In the early 11th century BC, the Zhao tribe under King Wu, employing the master military strategist Jiang Xia, led a rebellion against the last Shang ruler, a notoriously corrupt despot named Di Xin. As with the last Xia ruler before him, Di Xin is said to have raised taxes to support his lavish lifestyle, tortured his opponents, including making them hug red-hot bronze cylinders until they died, and also had a big lake of wine constructed for royal orgies, 
this time with the novel twist of adding an island in the center containing trees with branches of roasted meat skewers. So the rule I'm learning for Chinese dynasties is, once you've reached the wine lake with accompanying meat forest stage, you might want to start looking over your shoulder. The Zhao tribe, previously appointed as protectors of the West under the Shang, finally faced off against their former masters at the Battle of Muye in 1046 BC. The Zhao fielded 4,000 chariots and 45,000 foot soldiers against a Shang army of 50 to 70,000 troops along with numerous slaves. In the end, the Zhao forces emerged victorious. Di Xin, once he saw that the Shang cause was lost, burned down his own palace with himself and all his treasures inside. Upon taking power, King Wu claimed that his new Zhao dynasty had a mandate from heaven to govern China, as long as they did so with wisdom and justice. Claiming the mandate of heaven would become a staple of future Chinese dynasties. Now let's travel westward across Asia and look back in on India. As mentioned previously, the Harappan civilizations of the Indus River Valley had declined around 2000 BC, and by 1700 BC the area remained productive, but major cities had been abandoned and long-distance trade had withered. Around 1500 BC, the Indus Valley was invaded by a light-skinned nomadic people from the north called Aryans, who entered the region through mountain passes from what is now Afghanistan and Iran, which, incidentally, was named after the Aryan tribe. The Aryans likely originated in the steppes of Central Asia and Southern Russia, near the Caucasus Mountains and between the Black and Caspian Seas. Their forebears spoke a Proto-Indo-European language that, over millennia, would give birth to all the languages of the Indo-European family, including such diverse and widely spoken tongues as Sanskrit, Latin, and Greek. The Aryans who entered northern India spoke Sanskrit, considered the classical language of India, as well as the ancestor of Hindi, Urdu, Bengali, Punjabi, Sindhi, and Gujarati. The Aryans told of their beliefs and traditions in orally transmitted verses called Vedas, or books of knowledge, which represent the earliest known Indian literature. For this reason, the arrival of the Aryans marked the beginning of the so-called Vedic Age of Indian history. From the Vedas, we learn that the Aryans were, or at least considered themselves, hard-fighting cattle herders and horse breeders who rode chariots into battle, worshipped storm gods, and were organized into rival tribes ruled by chiefs or kings. Which probably sounds a little familiar, and with good reason. The process of Indo-Aryan expansion out of Central Asia, between 2000 and 1500 BC, is also believed to have resulted in the domination of the Hurrians by their own Indo-Iranian elite, resulting in the creation of the Mitanni state. There are established cultural connections between the Aryans and Mitanni. As one notable example, the Hittite king Supaluliuma I mentioned that the treaty he signed with the Mitanni king Shatiwaza was sworn in the name of several Vedic deities, including Maitra, Varuna, Indra, and Nasatya, suggesting that the Mitanni and Aryans worshipped the same gods. Since the Aryans probably invented the horse-driven chariot, it's also interesting to look at the spread of Central Asian chariotry out across the ancient world during the Bronze Age. We noted previously that the Hurrians had probably first introduced the chariot into the Near East in the 18th century BC. 
From there, the technology passed to the Hyksos and through them to New Kingdom Egypt. In the 16th century BC, at the same time as the chariot-riding Aryans were invading northern India, only decades had passed since the Hittites, another Indo-European people, had used the same technology in their assault of Babylonia. During the 15th century BC, the chariot would also make its way to Mycenaean Greece by way of Anatolia, and by the late 14th century BC, the technology would finally complete its long journey across Asia to be adopted by the rulers of Shang Dynasty China. As a result of this process, the elite chariot-riding warrior, with his formidable bronze weapons, became emblematic of all major societies of the late Bronze Age. Now back to the Aryans. Once they had established control over the Indus Valley region, the Aryans imposed a class system, placing themselves above the darker-skinned natives, sometimes referred to as Dravidians. The term Aryan began to mean noble, and this nobility was divided into two ranks, priests and warriors. Priests ostensibly had higher station, but in practice the warriors seldom deferred to anyone. Although greater social mobility was permitted than in the later, more rigid Indian caste system, the Aryan aristocracy managed to hold on to both their distinct cultural identity and associated privileges for centuries. Like the gods they worshipped, including the conqueror Indra, hurler of thunderbolts, the Aryans were culturally belligerent and quick to take offense. They often expanded their territories at the expense of rivals. One famous legend is told of a chieftain who set a white stallion free to roam, claiming as his own all the ground the horse covered over the course of a year, and then defending his claim in battle against all challengers. Gradually, the Aryans expanded from the Indus Valley into the lush Ganges Valley, which provided them not only with abundant harvests, but also with large iron deposits for the manufacture of iron tools and weapons. Profiting from these circumstances, Aryan chieftains rose to the status of rajas or kings. By 700 BC, there were 16 Aryan kingdoms in India, reduced to four larger kingdoms by the 5th century BC, most of them located within the Indus and Ganges valleys. The written forms of several of the major Vedas, as well as the Upanishads, likely originate in this period. The Mahabharata and Ramayana also claim similar lineage, although these works were likely the result of more complex and multi-layer processes. Aryan civilization would continue to dominate India until confronted with the overwhelming might of the Persian Empire, which we'll obviously cover in some detail later on in this series. We've gone a little farther down the road time-wise with Vedic India than we have with other major civilizations we've discussed, for one main reason. Over most of the Vedic period, the Aryans had no written language, only oral traditions, painstakingly preserved through the use of elaborate mnemonic techniques. They also acted in relative isolation from the other great civilizations of the era, meaning that no one else wrote about them. Unfortunately, the absence of written historical accounts or significant archaeological finds limits the amount of detail we can learn about Vedic culture. Also, from what we do know, a fairly high degree of cultural continuity existed across the entire Vedic period, so it's reasonable to carry the discussion forward to the moment of its first serious shock, the Persian invasion of Darius the Great in the late 6th century BC 
where we'll pick up the story later. But now let's backtrack to the 15th century BC, turn our gaze west, and look in on the Aegean during the period of Mycenaean rule. We last left the Mediterranean as the Minoan culture of Crete fell under the twin blows of environmental disaster and foreign invasion. As we mentioned previously, the conquering Mycenaean Greeks incorporated many aspects of Minoan culture into their own. One major example was the Minoan Linear A script, which the Mycenaean Greeks adopted to create their own Linear B writing system, a syllabic script that's considered an early form of Greek. Like Linear A under the Minoans, the Mycenaean Greeks used Linear B mainly for administrative purposes. The Mycenaean Greeks were also heavily influenced by Minoan artistic traditions. Although the Minoan love of pure nature was replaced by Mycenaean depictions of nature and animals in relation to man, a telling cultural distinction. Although they had no known priesthood and built no temples, the Mycenaean Greeks brought with them, and bequeathed to later Greeks, many of the familiar gods of their mythology, including Ares, Athena, Dionysus, Poseidon, and the Furies. As early as 1450 BC, the Mycenaean Greeks were already trading and raiding throughout the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean. Over time, Mycenaean Greek traders came to rival the Minoans, enriching their homes on the Greek mainland with imported gold and other exotic treasures. Other Mycenaean Greeks remained tied to the land, rigidly clinging to the warlike traditions of their ancestors, and continued to gain their wealth through the conquest and plunder of surrounding territories. Mycenaean weapons and armor have made their way down to us. The typical helmet was made of cut segments of boar's tusk sewn into leather or cloth backing. Two types of shields were used, the figurate or fiddle shield, and a rectangular type, the tower shield, rounded at the top. Both were made of wood and leather, and were of such a large size that a warrior could shield his entire body behind them. Offensive arms were made of bronze, and included spears, javelins, swords, daggers, and bows and arrows. From later sources such as the Iliad and Odyssey, we also know that Mycenaean warriors used chariots as battlefield transport, then dismounted to fight on foot with spear, sword, and dagger. The Mycenaean Greeks were not a unified empire, but instead a conglomeration of numerous small kingdoms, each with its own hilltop fortress commanding surrounding farmlands. This hilltop fortress was the origin of the Greek Acropolis, or High City. The most impressive of these strongholds was Mycenae, from which the civilization takes its name. Girded by a stone wall 40 feet high and more than 26 feet thick, the fortress of Mycenae was virtually impregnable. Legend had it that only the mythic Cyclopes had the strength to move the enormous boulders used in their construction, giving birth to the term Cyclopean Walls. The only entrance was a gate between two magnificently carved stone lions. Like Knossos, thanks listeners, under the Minoans, Mycenae may have been the seat of a great king or overlord to whom the other rulers deferred. However, unlike the comparatively carefree Minoans, the Mycenaean Greeks were clearly preoccupied with the defense of their main stronghold against external threats. Mycenaean fortresses were smaller than Minoan palaces, but resembled them in many other respects, and probably served as the basis for a similar palace economy. 
Within the stone walls were workshops for potters, weavers, goldsmiths, bronze workers, and other artisans. Mycenaean society appears to have been divided into two groups of free men, the king's entourage, who conducted administrative duties at the palace, and the people, da-mo or demos, who lived at the commune level. The latter were watched over by royal agents and were obliged to perform duties for and pay taxes to the palace. Vast residences found in proximity to Mycenaean palaces were probably the home of high officials, while others who serviced the palace economy, such as craftsmen and merchants, were probably not much better off than members of the Da Mo. On the lowest rung of the social ladder were the slaves, recorded in texts as being either in service of the palace or of specific deities. The king presided over ceremonies in a magnificent hall called a Megaron, with brightly painted pillars, decorative wall frescoes, and a central hearth. The tombs of Mycenaean royalty, deep stone chambers shaped like beehives, were filled with so many precious objects that they were known as treasuries. Among the riches that accompanied kings to the grave were necklaces, crowns, breastplates, and golden masks. One such burial hoard, uncovered at Mycenae, was mistakenly identified at one time as the tomb of Agamemnon, a legendary king of enormous power and wealth who organized the siege of Troy, or Ilium, the Anatolian city memorialized in Homer's Iliad. In fact, the tomb held the remains of an even older Mycenaean king who died in the late 16th century BC, roughly three centuries before the destruction of Troy. By the apex of their civilization, around 1250 BC, the Mycenaean Greeks held sway over the southern Greek mainland, Crete, the Cyclades Islands, and Cyprus. They had also established colonies on Rhodes and the coast of Anatolia, and were actively trading westward as far as Malta, Sicily, and the Italian mainland. A Mycenaean shipwreck from this period, discovered off the southern coast of Anatolia, held a cargo of pottery and copper ingots from Cyprus, tin from Anatolia, resin, glass, and ivory from Canaan, ebony jewelry and weapons from Egypt, and ostrich eggs from Libya. This cosmopolitan cargo reflected the increased activity in seaborne trade in the eastern Mediterranean during the 14th and 13th centuries BC. Ships of all major coastal powers traveled in a counterclockwise direction along the coast, from western Syria to Cyprus to southern Anatolia, and from there to the Aegean Islands and mainland Greece. The return voyage was made from Crete to the coast of Libya, after which ships set sail for Egypt and then back to Syria. Certain cities, such as the Canaanite port city of Ugarit, acted as hubs for a system that linked this maritime trade with the overland trade routes of Mesopotamia, Anatolia, and Egypt. Such a role often made these port cities wealthy and powerful, but also drew the attention of the great regional powers of the age, such as the Egyptians and the Hittites, who frequently contested control over them. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the elephant in the podcast, Troy. And the main question, who were the Trojans? We discussed last episode that even when the Hittites were challenging Egypt for control of Syria and Canaan, they were unable to control the Black and Aegean Sea coasts of Anatolia itself. In the north, they were challenged by the Gazga, a powerful tribe that managed to sack the Hittite capital of Atusas at least once, 
during the early 13th century BC under the Hittite king Muwatalli II. Muwatalli is the same king who will shortly face off against Ramesses II in the infamous Battle of Kadesh, but that's for next episode. For now, we're more interested in his brother, the future king Hattusili III, who was left behind to reconquer Hattusas and manage the Anatolian territories. The landscape of western Anatolia featured a number of kingdoms of greater and lesser power, and greater and lesser independence. The kings of Arzawa, located in southwestern Anatolia, and Alashaya, based in Copperit, Cyprus, were granted privileged, if transitory, access to the Club of Great Powers, being mentioned in the Amarna letters. Over time, Arzawa fell under complete Hittite domination, while Alashaya always managed to retain at least some degree of self-determination. But perhaps the most important western Anatolian kingdom of the period was Ahiyawa. Even as you say it, you can hear the similarity to Ahian, the Homeric term for the Greeks, which begins to raise all sorts of interesting questions. It's fairly well established that by this period, the Mycenaean Greeks had commercial outposts along the western Anatolian coast, whether or not they also established a powerful Anatolian kingdom, possibly ruled from mainland Greece, is still hotly debated. It is known that when Hattusili III, as part of his Anatolian cleanup, requested the aid of the king of Ahiawa in controlling Hittite rebels operating out of his territory, he addressed him as brother and equal. But back to Troy. The archaeological remains of the ancient city were rediscovered in the late 19th century AD under a large mound near the Turkish village of Hisarlik. Troy 7a, the archaeological layer contemporary with the timing of the Trojan War, is commonly associated with the ancient city-state of Walusa, from which comes Wilios, Ilios, and Ilium. Located in northwestern Anatolia, southeast of the Dardanelles and beside Mount Ida, Walusa existed on the periphery of Hittite, Arzawa, and Ahiawa control. From contemporary Hittite correspondence, we know that this ancient city-state was part of a confederacy of small kingdoms, called the Asua League, who banded together to resist Hittite domination. The Troy of this period was a walled city covering some 50 acres, with towers reaching a height of nearly 30 feet, and a population of five to 10,000. The archaeological remains of the city feature a destruction layer, by fire, around 1190 BC, corresponding eerily closely to the date traditionally given in Greek accounts for the fall of Troy, 1184 BC. If Troy 7a was destroyed by war, that in itself would not be surprising. The city was situated in an extremely strategic location, at the mouth of the Dardanelles, and was surrounded by a number of militant expansionist kingdoms. Taking things farther, based on the archaeological and documentary evidence, and its correlation with the Homeric text, it's certainly possible that the seafaring Mycenaean Greeks were indeed the cause of Troy's downfall. But of course, the case of Troy as Walusa, and the historicity of the Iliad in general, are also still hotly debated. The most likely case is that the Homeric texts contain elements of historical fact interwoven with fictional elements. For those needing a recap of the events of the Trojan War, I point you toward either the Homer or Brad Pitt versions. There will be no judgments here. 
Long story short, at the end of ten years, the Greeks managed to sneak inside Troy, sack the city, and then make their way back home, some taking a bit longer to get back than others. In the What Happened Next department, you might be excused for thinking the Mycenaean Greeks probably returned to their homeland victorious, heavily laden with all their Trojan booty, and with their standing as a regional power even more secure. You might also be excused for thinking the Hittites probably took advantage of Troy's downfall to sweep into western Anatolia and expand their new kingdom. And here's where things get really weird. Because, within a few decades on either side of the Trojan War, or at least the time it was supposed to have taken place in, the Mycenaean Greeks and the Hittite New Kingdom were just gone. I mean gone. Major cities burned to the ground, all correspondence suddenly falling silent, just a big fat hole where two mighty civilizations had once stood. And they weren't alone. The eastern Mediterranean of 1200 BC was veritably bubbling with the chaotic motion of refugees and outlaws, massing together into a tsunami that would finally break with violent intensity on the shores of distant Egypt. But that still doesn't answer the question of just what the heck was going on. The real answer, the somewhat disappointing answer, is that we don't really know just what the heck was going on. But we will take a good, hard look at what we do know, and try to lay out at least a few plausible theories to explain this massive Eastern Mediterranean cultural implosion known as the Bronze Age Collapse. First, though, as promised, we still need to catch up on the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the 19th Egyptian dynasty, which means I'll either be covering all of this in two reasonably sized episodes or one gigantic episode. Find out along with me next time on The Ancient World.